So I jump ship in Hong Kong. And I make my way over to Tibet. And I get on as a looper at a course over there in Himalayas. A looper? A looper. You know, a caddy, a looper. Jack. So I tell him I'm a pro jack. And who do you think they give me? The Dalai Lama himself. The 12th son of the Lama. The flowing robes, the grace, bald. Striking. So I'm on a first tee with him. I give him the driver. He hauls off and whacks one. Big hitter, the Lama. Long. Into a 10,000-foot crevice right at the base of this glacier. Do you know what the Lama says? No. Gunga, Galunga. Gunga, Gunga, Lagunga. So we finish 18, and he's going to stiff me. And I say, hey, Lama, hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort, you know? And he says, oh, uh, there won't be any money. But when you die on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. So I got that going for me. Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. And joining us today is BTC Aaron, a golfer on the verge of playing in the US Open. Fingers crossed, mate. We are all behind you. And we love the fact that you're going to be flying the Bitcoin flag and you have hodl written on your balls there's no other way to say it listeners there just really isn't (laughs) but we get into all of that and much more and this is a real cinderella story so stay tuned because we get into some deep rabbit holes and aaron has another little ace up his sleeve which he is going to tell you all about the work he's doing behind the scenes to help a certain city go on to a Bitcoin standard. Now, before we get into the show, I want to make sure you are all stacking sats because these are good prices, people. I'm telling you right now, if you walk into your favorite store and you see your favorite product on a 50% to 30% discount, what do you do? You buy it. That's what you should be doing with Bitcoin and you should be stacking in the UK with coinfloor.co.uk or across Europe with Relay, R-E-L-A-I-C-H. And, of course, in the US, with swanbitcoin.com. Use forward slash bitten for all of these services and get stacking. You'll save on commission or you'll get a free 10 bucks with swan. But then you've got to take control because we don't want anybody losing their coins or being shaken out of them. Use a hardware wallet. Use the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin Only Edition. It has a bunch of amazing features. You will not be disappointed. Go to shiftcrypto.com. .ch forward slash bitten for a 5% discount. It's in the hole. All right, cool. We are recording. Welcome to the show, brother. Great to see you. Yeah, great. Thank, thanks for having me. Great to be here. 
Well, usually Lauren is here to, to ask the first question, but as you can see, I got a young man standing by me. Uh, this is this is Samuel. Lauren has just uh, she's just flown out the door. She's off to her riding lessons. So we got a stand in. It's pretty good stand in twin brother. I mean, I can't get much closer. <laughs> so uh, Samuel, you are going to fire away with the uh, the first couple of questions and, and which Lauren gave you one, right? Yeah, uh, I forgot that one. <laughs> she never re she never told me. She, she shouted it through the hole. I was like, what did she say? And I couldn't be bothered to ask. What uh, did okay, say? well, I, I remember her, her question. So. Oh, yeah. Have right, you um, met Tiger Woods before? <laughs> no, I've never met Tiger Woods. Uh, I've, I've followed him a few times at golf tournaments, but no, I've never, never <laughs> met Tiger Woods. The reason the reason she asks is because right above my desk is a picture of the time that I met Tiger and I got the signed hat. So uh, oh, that, nice. that's about all she knows about golf. I don't think she's ever watched any. But, uh, but how about you, mate? What are your questions? Okay, so how many of your balls were hit into the water? In my entire golf career? Yeah. Oh, I have no idea. I mean, it's countless. There's... Uh... <laughs> I probably lose a golf ball about once every three rounds and I've probably played, you know, 5,000 rounds. So <laughs> I guess if you do the math on that, you could figure out about how many golf balls I've lost or hit into the water. But uh, yeah, it happens more than you want it to. <laughs> that, that is for sure. Mate, I, let me let you into a little secret. When I was playing golf over in Singapore, we used to go to uh, a little island in Indonesia called... Um, Bintan and have the beautiful course on there, Ria Bintan. It's called. It's amazing, perfect condition. But my goodness, not only are like I don't know a handful of the holes right on the the ocean, but there's uh, water all over the place. And I would lose more ball more balls than we played holes. Let's let's yeah. put it this way. And uh, <laughs> we we had the, the the local guys would be out on little mopeds, and you'd come and you'd park up to to take your your tee shot. And these guys would just appear out of the jungle with uh, bags of uh, bags of balls that you could buy off them for like 10 bucks. Without those guys, we, we, we just wouldn't have got around. It was a joke. They were, they were, they were collecting the balls that were, that were lost in the woods and selling them back to you? Absolutely. Yeah, that was then, a pretty common entrepreneurial uh, business that kind of the kids did around the golf courses. They all had their little golf ball stand set up where they'd sell your go golf balls back to you after they found them in the woods. Yeah, we did that in Portugal, and we sold it for five. What's the money there in Portugal? Euro. Yeah, so we sold it for five euros. Yeah, we had a good little racket going, didn't we? We yeah. was we were home swapping with uh, with the house that was on. It was placed about midway down the first uh, fairway, and so if you, I mean, some people might call it uh, a power draw. But others might just call it, you know, a total duck hook. If if people, <laughs> if people, if people were, you know, hitting a few of those, it was landing in the garden of the house, or sometimes even in the pool and hitting the roof and whatever. Yeah, so, but it's dangerous because if it hits a window, it can smash a window. Yeah. If it hits one of us, it can knock us out. Yeah, but it also provided a good money earning opportunity, didn't it, mate? Because what True. would you do each day? Well, I don't know. Sit there and be bored. No, but yeah, but you would go and hunt for the balls, right? True. You, you would go and find the balls, and then he would wash them, 
put them in um, uh, an egg box. An, an egg box. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Did you sort them by brand? Yes. Yeah, yeah, we sorted them by brand, and there was a premium for the Titleist Pro V ones. There you go. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you made about twenty-two euros, didn't you, doing that? Yes, but sometimes we sold symbols for ten euros. I can't remember. I cannot remember. But you gifted a, a tight list. We had one extra tight list, and you and you gifted it to one of the guys, and he was very, uh, very pleased, wasn't he? For free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to keep your customers happy. True. <laughs> right. What was your other question? My other question was, how many balls have you plopped in no, you've the done hole the... one? In uh, one oh, hole in one. A hole yeah, in one. How many? One. Yeah, how many hole in ones? Uh, yeah, so I've had one hole in one. Uh, I've come close a lot, but yeah, I've only I've only seen it go in once. I've I've had it hit on the lip of the hole, bounce to the backside, and stay there. But um, yeah, hole in ones are a, a weird thing. You know, it just kind of happened out of the blue. You know, it's pretty lucky that it actually goes in. But uh, yeah, I've only had one. Where was that? It was at a local golf course here in Jackson, Tennessee. Yeah, it was when I was in college. Um, I was playing. It wasn't even a tournament. We were playing in like a little afternoon game, and uh, we had a big skins pot, and I won all the skins. But it was just a, it was about a hundred and thirty yard shot. I hit a hit a gap wedge, and it spun back, came landed past the hole, spun back into the hole, and and uh, yeah, won all the skins. But yeah, it wasn't in a tournament or anything. Man, did you have to get the drinks? Uh, yeah, well, I was underage at the time, so. Uh, I think I did put some money up for the drinks, but I, you know, I was just a poor college kid. I couldn't really afford to give them to to buy too many drinks. This, yeah, there was there was probably uh, there's probably forty guys that were all playing in the game, so they, I think all of them at least got one drink off of me. Do you do you have this thing in the in the states? I know it happens in the UK. People buy a hole in one insurance. <laughs> no, I, I haven't heard of that. Really, <laughs> I'm sure people do that because otherwise you you just get absolutely creamed at the bar afterwards yeah so in our in our local game the uh, the game that we play at our club uh we do a thing where everybody on the first tee agrees that if someone in the group makes a hole in one that day everybody's going to pay them 100 bucks it's just the the standing bet you know when you tee off uh you if anybody makes a hole in one that day everybody who's playing in the game you don't have to be like in the group but if we have you know two or three groups that are going off together everybody pays that person 100 bucks so you might have 12 15 guys that are all in the game and so if you make a hole in one, as long as your bar tab's not more than a thousand dollars, you're going to be okay. <laughs> and yeah. plus they have like, uh, in our club, they have like gift credit. So if, if you make a hole in one and you're a member of the men's golf association, you get $5 from every member of the golf association. So that usually turns out to be pretty good too. So you're going to be okay. It's kind of like a little hole in one insurance, I guess. Very cool. Well, Samuel, do you have any more questions about one more? Okay, man, far away. Um, how old were you when you started to play golf? Uh, I would say I first picked up a club when I was in probably middle school. I guess I was in eighth grade or so, or sometime around there. Um, my dad played, and he wanted me to get into golf, and I had no interest in golf. But he got me started and got me hitting the ball. And uh, I really started taking golf seriously and started playing tournament golf really once I got to college. So it was, you know, it was a, I was a little bit of a late bloomer when it came to uh, competitive golf. Um, yeah, when I was in high school, I had a lot of other interests that didn't include golf. And uh, golf seemed kind of boring to me at the time. So, um, yeah, I would say, you know, first starting was, was I was probably 13, 14 years old when I first started hitting golf balls. But then 
really taking golf seriously and playing tournament golf didn't start until until college days. So. Pretty much the same as daddy. <laughs> he wants me to play a bit of golf. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a cool, I think it's a great sport. I think it's a brilliant sport for um, for young boys, especially to learn. It's, I, I, you know, you're out in the fresh air. It's very, um, I mean, it can be frustrating, but at the same time, uh, it, you know, it can be meditative, I, I suppose, in, in, in a way. If you're, if you're walking around all day and it, it's quiet and you're concentrating on, you know, the, the task at hand. Do, do you listen? Do you, do you walk? Have you got to the point now where you're walking around listening to podcasts as you play? <laughs> no, I usually have too much going on in our golf group and our game. So um, I do listen to podcasts while I'm practicing. I have my headphones in every day. I'm hitting balls, you know, working on my short game, uh, listening to podcasts, listening to every podcast. I mean, I don't have enough time to listen to every podcast out there. Uh, so pretty much my truck now is all podcast and then my practice time is all podcast. It's the only way I can stay up with it. But um, yeah, I do listen. I remember yesterday, I think I was listening to Safe Dean's podcast while I was hitting balls. <laughs> so, uh, Which one? Off. Which episode? Uh, what episode was it? It was the, the, I think it was the most recent one. I can't remember exactly. They were talking, it was about... Uh, Ripping Elon. Yeah, I may have. No, it wasn't. It wasn't that one. It was the one before that. Uh, the Free Private Cities guy? Yeah, yeah, that was the one. Yeah, The, yeah. the last Austrian or the, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. yeah it's, a, it's a good one. Do you, like, weird question. Before, when you, before when you were practicing without listening to podcasts now you practice is there a difference in the way you practice when you're listening to the podcast does, does it like slow your swing down are you more deliberate the reason i ask is because when i drive my my car if i'm listening to a podcast about bitcoin i'm i drive safer i drive slower i drive more aware because yeah. you know if i'm listening to music or something it's crazy you, you you might drive faster or whatever so i just wonder how that would ever affect like uh, if you're listening to it and hitting balls yeah. at the same time, I would say, yeah, probably I'm more I'm more focused on what I'm doing because if you're not if I wasn't before I didn't I didn't listen to anything I just I, I would go out there and hit balls but I would start chit chatting with people as they walk by I get distracted or whatever but now it's like people see me I've got my headphones in they don't bother me I just go right along doing what I'm doing and uh, uh, kind of stay dialed in but at the same time I guess it, it's almost a little bit of a distraction because when you're hitting balls, you're usually thinking about working on something, but you're also trying to listen to, a, uh, to something that's thought provoking. It's, it's, it's kind of a mental conflict there. But. All right, cool. Well, Samuel, do you have any further questions? <laughs> no. No. All right. Well, do you want to say uh, goodbye well, to Aaron? Bye. Thank you. Yeah. It was really cool talking to you. Yeah. Thanks. Nice to meet you. It's good to see you. Bye. Bye. So for those uh, tuning in, mate, let's uh, we, we should we should give everybody a little bit of uh, your your background. Um, have you? I've not listened to you before on any pods. Is this the first one you've done, or you? Uh, yeah, I did. I did one of the uh, the Swan Force interviews, but it was just a little quick 15, 10, 15 minute video. But I know I haven't done any podcast. All right, so let's let's give the people uh, a little bit of your background, who who you are, and. Uh, yeah, then then we'll 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 jump off from there. Obviously, we'll do right, a rabbit so, hole story, and uh, th there's yeah. no script, so let, let's yeah. we're blank canvas right here. All right, I'll start. Uh, I guess I can give you my golf story. That's probably what people want to hear. I guess. Uh, so, um, like I said, I I started kind of playing golf, not really seriously, um, just 
my my dad he was he played golf a little bit he was pretty good but he wanted me to like learn how to play golf but like like I said in high school I had every other interest in the world I was playing football I was riding BMX bikes I was you know chasing girls doing whatever golf seemed you know it was it was such a it took so much time out of your day to go play golf and I really, really didn't have interest in it and then um you know I was growing up and I went I actually went to college to play football I was a tight end um I got, uh, I got, my brother was getting recruited. My brother's younger than me. He's like six, eight, 300 pounds, played left tackle. Like he was getting recruited by all these guys. So when the coach came down to recruit my brother, uh, I told him that I was playing tight end and I wanted to come play football. And so he's like, all right, you can come too. So he, he got both of us and uh, we came up as a small school in Jackson. That's how I ended up here in Jackson. I'm originally from Birmingham, Alabama. So we came up uh, to Jackson to play football and, uh, I walked on the golf team my freshman year just because the golf team was terrible. They needed players. It was a small school and, uh, and thought I would give it a shot. So, um, about a year into playing football and golf, uh, I was not very good at golf. I was on the team and I was getting to play in some tournaments, but I was shooting, you know, anywhere from the mid to high seventies to like 90 in these, in these college golf tournaments, but it was playing football at the same time. So I didn't really have time to practice golf. And uh, coach uh, Hugh Freeze, who ended up going on, he became he went to like went on to big Division one schools. He played he, or he, he coached at uh, Ole Miss. Uh, he came in and he was our coach my second year, and he started bringing in recruits uh, to play tight end. And I looked around and I was like, I'm never going to play for this guy. Like these guys are way better. I mean, these are Division one athletes coming to this small school to play for him. And so I, I made the decision to quit football and just focus on golf. And uh, that was the best decision I ever made. So I went, uh, I kind of just put my head down, decided I wanted, if I was going to play golf, I wanted to be good at golf. So I put my head down and every morning before classes started at like seven in the morning, I was going out to the golf course, just hitting balls, practicing, you know, working on short game. And uh, I got, like, I went from being the fifth or sixth best guy on the team to I won three college tournaments before I graduated. Uh, I've, I lost in a playoff in our conference finals. And uh, got to where I was like, all right, I think I can play golf. Um, got out of college and decided I was going to give it a go, turn pro, um, moved down to Georgia and played on the Peach State Tour for about six months. And on the Peach State, on those mini tours, you have uh, – it's basically just gambling. You're putting – it costs $1,000 to get into them. You're traveling. You get, you're paying for hotel fees. So it's expensive to play. And then if you don't finish in, like, the top three, you're losing money. And there's like 60 guys out there and you, if you don't you, you can make the cut and still lose money because it's just so expensive to play in them there's no like uh there's no prize there's no additional prize money there's no sponsorship money it's basically just everybody throws the money in and and, and goes and so i did that for six months and didn't really have the funding uh, you know we grew up i was you know middle class i didn't grow up at a country club or have a, a trust fund so we didn't you know, it was like basically I had to give it a shot to either try it. And if I if I played my way on and made money early, then I could kept going. But uh, I went down there and was shooting, you know, even par, a couple under par in these tournaments and just getting smoked. You know, some of these guys, these grinders are going out there and shooting, you know, six, eight under for two rounds and then making the cut and then shooting another, you know, five, six under on the on the next days. Um, and so I just I couldn't quite keep up with them. And I got burnt out doing that. I got really burnt out on golf. I decided I was going to, you know, move on and just do something else. I, I put my clubs up. I didn't touch a golf club for probably four or five years from 
the time I graduated or the time I, I did that for like the six months after I graduated until, you know, four or five years later. But, you know, during that time I went to work and I started, um, you know, started just was working, trying to find my way, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then uh, I ended up making my way back to Jackson uh, and then uh, kind of got it settled down and decided I was going to pick the clubs back up and I uh, got my amateur status back uh, 2016, 2017, uh, started playing more, uh, amateur golf tournaments, getting back into competitive golf. And then just the stress-free life of having some income and actually playing, you know, enjoyable golf. I, st I started playing the best golf of my life, uh, from like in 2018, I just went on a tear. Uh, I, I, I won, uh, a big tournament up in Kentucky, I turned around and then came back and won the Tennessee state amateur in 2018. Um, and then won a couple of local tournaments, the club championship, and just, I think I won like almost every tournament I teed it up in for about three or four months. Uh, and then, uh, but that's pretty much what got me kicked back off with golf. Uh, I've been kind of kicking around playing amateur golf since then. I play on what's called like the cocktail tour. It's basically a mid-amateur, 25 years and up, basically excludes the college players. And it's uh, just you know, guys that work for a living, guys that have other income that don't make money from golf, we go and play in these. And they're pretty good tournaments that you get to play really good golf courses. Uh, there's not prize money. You can win $750 in the gift shop. That's like your your max prize. But, um, yeah, so I've been doing that. And I just recently, you know, made it through the first round of, of local qualifying for the U.S. Open. So I've got final qualifying for the U.S. Open. It's actually in Jupiter, Florida, just north of the conference, uh, of the day after the conference or two days after the conference. So it all worked out great. I'm going to swing down to the conference and then zip up and play in the U.S. Open final qualifying. And uh, if I make it through that, I'll be at Torrey Pines. <laughs> Man, that's amazing. When is the U.S. Open? The U.S. Open is, uh, I guess it's the middle of June. I haven't actually seen, I don't remember the dates off the top of my head. But. Yeah. So, so what do you, <laughs> you're that close you're, you're yeah oh yeah. mate that that's unbelievable 36 holes away yeah they call that the longest day in golf when you uh the final qualifying for for everybody has to play 36 holes and uh you do it all in one day you have to walk it's a it's an absolute grind and uh you, you we're gonna you just got to go out there and have a good day and the top I mean, probably the top four or five guys from my spot will go so we'll have you know 70 guys playing for four or five spots um, that's basically what you had to go through in the first, but you have to play 18 holes, uh, to get it, get through the first, first section of it. And then you go to final qualifying. So my caddy, uh, his name is Brandon. He's a good friend of mine. He, we're having a request to, we got to get a cart for him down in Florida. He actually doesn't have, he had his legs amputated when he was about eight years old. And, uh, he's, he's a really good golfer. He's probably about a four or five handicap, but, uh, yeah, he's just, uh, He's a legend, and and he's going to come down and caddy for me in, in Jupiter if we if we get in that, down there. So it'll be a cool story. Awesome, love it. All right, what what uh, what is the work? What was the fiat uh, work that you you found yourself being drawn to after like you, you said you you hung the clubs up for four or five years and, and went and found some work. So what what kind of career path yeah. did you end up with? So um, yeah, but I guess after I came back from, I moved back from Georgia back to Birmingham and uh, I was, I like, I, I, my dad, he was an absolute grinder. He was, there's, I got two, two sisters and a brother. And uh, when we were, when we were growing up, he was working as an engineer. My mom didn't work. She stayed at home with us. And, and uh, 
when he was young, when he was like, I guess when we were young, he kind of looked at the future and decided like he was never going to get anywhere working as a, with a, as a salary job, making money. Like he's never going to get ahead. And uh, so he put his head down and started buying some real estate um, just in the, in parts of Birmingham. And he ended up accumulating enough real estate to where uh, we had enough growing up. And so I would, I would help him work on the real estate uh, all through high school and kind of helped him, you know, do construction, do projects. And when I got through playing, when I was, when I hung it up playing golf for the first time, uh, I, I just moved back to Birmingham and decided I like, I can get into some kind of construction, maybe to be a contractor. And so I went to work for um, a local contractor. I just told him, Hey, I want to, I want to come work for you. I'll do whatever. I just want to learn um, basically the trade. And we got in and he did a little bit of everything. We framed houses, we did trim work, we poured concrete. We did basically anything you can do on a house except for like the mechanical trades, like electrical or, or plumbing or HVAC. We pretty much did everything else. And uh, I did that for, for, I don't know, four or five years before. Well, no, it's about three years. And then my wife, she graduated from school. And so we, we moved back to Jackson at that point. But um, yeah, I was in construction. Worked for a, when we moved back to Jackson, I worked for a, a pretty good sized commercial construction firm. I built dialysis clinics and uh, like commercial uh, buildings for, for retail space. Uh, so I was, you know, build, just doing construction mostly. Um, I've kind of moved on from that. I, uh, I do kind of my own thing now. I've got my own little construction company. We do that on the side, but I bought some real estate. I own a mini storage complex, uh, just like a little self-storage uh, building. Um, yeah, when you know you start going down the rabbit hole of, of Bitcoin and you start thinking about time and how that relates to your life. And, you know, that was what got me thinking about like work and really like what you do for a living is like you're trading your time for money. And so I started thinking about myself as a business. And when you start thinking about yourself as a business, you think about what you're selling as a product. And really the only thing you have to sell if you're working for somebody is your time. And it, it, that turns you into like this rat race where you're just trading time for money, trading time for money. And you can't ever get out of that. So you got to start thinking outside the box. You got to start thinking about like, how can I do it? And if you have, if you have one job, then you have one customer. And if that customer ever says, you know, we don't need you anymore, then you're basically a, an insolvent business at that point. So I was looking at other ways to create income. And so now I, you know, I kind of do a little bit of everything, um, just investing here and there, buying some real estate, uh, doing different things. And stacking sats, obviously. And stacking that's, sats. That's why we're here. So, all right. Yeah. The rabbit hole called you at some stage how and yeah. why um i would say that it started with like ron paul uh back when ron paul was was campaigning um kind of looking at libertarian ideas and even going back to when i was in college um my i took economics i was studied business in college but my economics professor in college he had us do like some studies on this book called freakonomics and there was like a freakonomics program and basically it was looking at like the second order effects of, of things. So we would look at, you know, like a policy that went into place. And then you would look at like long-term second order effects, like the intended consequences versus the unintended consequences. And, uh, and it really, that really triggered something in my brain to start looking at everything critically, looking at um, the way that the way relationships actually work versus good intentions versus what's actually happening. 
And uh, so I started going down that road and that was, you know, 2011, 2012, I was, I was getting out of school and I started thinking critically about stuff. And I remember reading like the creature from Jekyll Island, um, Mike Maloney uh, started going down that road, that, that rabbit hole where, you know, he's his video series on currency and money. And then, kind of became like started, I guess I would call myself like an anarcho-capitalist where I'm in these groups and we're talking about like problems, but there was no solution. You know, it was everybody just, you know, buy gold, silver and bullets and, and let's complain about stuff. And then in uh, 2015, or actually in 2012 or 13, I probably heard about Bitcoin for the first time, but I brushed it off and said, this, this won't work. Like, like you can just make more of it. That was my initial thought. And then I brushed it off and never and then didn't think about it again until I was watching uh, this documentary on Ross Albright that called the deep web about the Silk Road. And they had just a short little section in there about Bitcoin and it was kind of explaining some of it. Um, and it just triggered something in me because I had already been, I had been studying the gold and silver side of things and thinking about like how fiat money works and how the banking system actually works. And when, when I saw that Bitcoin piece, it like triggered something in me to start looking at it. And so this time I was like, well, I'm going to prove why it doesn't work. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to just brush it off this time. So I started looking at it, started uh, watching stuff online, reading as much as I could. And like I said, I kind of fell down the rabbit hole late 2015, early 2016, or like for like a four or five month period, I was obsessed, didn't do anything, just took in as much information, watched as many Andreas Antonopoulos videos as I could. Um, but yeah, my initial goal was to set out why it couldn't work. And then, you know, six months later, that's all I'm talking about is Bitcoin. I'm obsessed with Bitcoin. I'm telling everybody about Bitcoin. Uh, I remember going back out to the country club where all my friends were and, you know, just tell, show, telling them about Bitcoin, thinking like, oh, they're going to get it. Yeah, this is going to make sense to everybody and everybody's going to buy it. And so I'm like the crazy guy er, er, telling everybody to buy Bitcoin, like that uh, Bitcoin's going to change the world. And I'm, I'm you know, looking back, I'm sure I sounded crazy as hell to them, <laughs> but uh, none of them really looked at it. We just kind of went on, you know, and and that was that was kind of what got me got me down the rabbit hole. And really, six five five six years later, um, still haven't come out. You know, you pop up every once in a while and peek out and think, "Am I crazy, or or is everybody else crazy?" <laughs> but uh, back then, there wasn't as much uh, like Bitcoin Twitter wasn't near as strong, so. I remember listening to like Ansel Lindner's podcast. He had one and then there was a couple others, but there wasn't a lot of content out there. And so you really did feel crazy. Um, you had to kind of find your own path. Now it's, uh, you can get on Bitcoin Twitter and you look around and like, you get confirmation from everybody else. Like, yeah, you're on the right path. We're all doing that. We're all in this together. Like we understand everybody. And you, when you can, when you have any conversations with any other Bitcoiners, you know, immediately, like, like it clicks. Um, and so, yeah, that was, I remember going down that path and, and looking at Bitcoin and, and just popping up every once in a while from and talking to my normie friends and them thinking I'm totally crazy and me thinking maybe I am crazy. Maybe, maybe this isn't going to work. But uh, yeah, the more you go down, the more conviction and then the, then the community really helps. Like you start uh, building relationships and building connections. And um, yeah, now here we are today, six years later and uh, still studying every day. It's weird out there, man. Normie land. Yeah. It's, oh man, yeah, you know, <clears throat> do the same thing every now and then, just check in, like, it, it's like you peer out the rabbit hole and see, like, what's going on, and you you see sheeple everywhere, 
and angry sheeple screaming and shouting at each other. I mean, I know we do the same on Bitcoin on Twitter at, uh, at certain stages, but um, for the most part, it's, uh, you know, keeping everybody in check and, and um, you know, smashing out big ideas and grand ideas. But um, yeah, when you when you check in, I'm completely flipped now that it's like, this is the only place that actually has any sanity. It, this is totally, it yeah. is incredible. Yeah, for sure. Like I was, I was, I was closing. And I sold a bit, one one of the rental houses I had yesterday, and I was sitting in the law office waiting to close. And I'm listening to two real estate agents talk about like the mar- housing market and what's going on, and it, they they really have no idea what's going on out there. They just like people. Everybody is looking at the uh, like the the. I guess, I guess the symptoms and nobody's looking at the problem. Everybody's, you know, pointing to the symptoms. They're like, oh yeah, these, these houses are just going up. I mean, everybody's wanting to buy right now. And, you know, the, the way they talk, they just don't understand that, like, that our, our monetary system has created so many incentives, uh, dis- like, in, like malinvestment incentives that it's just driving uh, asset prices up, you know, you're getting um, just a, a huge expansion of the wealth gap based on just monetary incentives it's 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 driving asset appreciation and then anybody who doesn't own assets is being left behind um and so people just (laughs) yeah they don't they don't know what they're looking at there's they're seeing houses go up and they think that people are just willing to pay more right now and she was talking about yeah if you if you want to buy right now then you'll um yeah unless you're going to live there for five or six years you're not going to get your money back but house prices could go up another 15 to 20 percent in the next two months you never know mate and at the end of the day they're just incentivized to sell houses for their commission right so they, they really don't care yeah yeah, yeah the more the uh, faster the housing market goes up and the hotter it gets but right now they're i think they're running into a problem where they don't have enough houses to sell <laughs> you know everybody's buying up all the inventory everybody's trying to escape uh fiat money especially investors you know they're looking for some kind of yield everybody's out there buying up everything just to get some sort of yield on their money because they know they can't keep it in cash and they can't, there's nowhere else to put it. And it's, it's so crazy that if people were, if they're looking for this yield, how do they not find Bitcoin? I mean, they're so damn conditioned to it's real estate. Uh, that's the first knee jerk reaction for people, isn't it? Because some people, they, they see the, most people I would say, I would argue, they see the, the, the stock, stock exchanges, uh, stock markets as too, too risky don't understand it. It's all too a little bit weird. Um, doesn't really seem to make sense. It's not even that tangible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, gold or silver, they're like, no, that's just clearly for millionaires or billionaires. And, you know, what the hell are you even thinking? Uh, so it, it just always comes back to, to real estate houses because it's done nothing but go up ever since. I'm sure there's a very straight line correlated to 1971. And that's all they see. But if they were just... God damn it. Just read one article or listen to one podcast yeah. about Bitcoin. Yeah. My dad's the same way. He's, he's a boomer, but he, uh, he, he, like I said, he was a grinder. He started buying the real estate because he knew that, you know, we were lower middle class, but we were going to, we were going to stay there unless he did something about it. And so he worked full time. And then on the weekends he would, he would go and work on the real estate. He would buy houses. And so I've been t- talking to him about it as much as I can. I mean, he's he's not on zero anymore, but um, 
he doesn't quite still he doesn't understand Bitcoin. He he's got a lot of hurdles still from the fiat mindset, still pricing everything in dollars. And when I tell him, you know, your houses are depreciating, like the house itself is depreciating. It's just depreciating slower than the dollar. But when you price it in Bitcoin, you see that depreciation. You understand that that Bitcoin is outpacing everything, and you're you're basically losing money holding this real estate unless you're unless the rents are keeping up unless you're collecting enough money on rent to keep up but all of the costs that go into real estate you know your taxes your maintenance fees all that is like is depreciation um and so even though it's going up in in fiat terms when you get ready to sell it and you move on you're not going to be able to buy as many goods and services with that money that you sold it for and so you're you're at, you are depreciating you just don't see it on paper because the whole base for monetary monetary calculations, economic calculations, the whole base is broken. You know, you can't make sound economic calculations when you don't have a solid foundation to, to calculate on. And he he understands some of it. He understands enough to where he's he's stacking some sats, but he's not, you know, he still he still has a lot of uh, of rebuttals to when we get into some conversations about Bitcoin. Man, well, good luck because yeah, it can be. That's that's something we all struggle with, right? To you know, um, trying to help our nearest and dearest understand uh, and see what we see, but especially with that generation. And you know, it, it's nothing yeah. against that generation. Um, for any listeners out there, you know, I, I hate the generational wars. I think they're all bullshit. Um, but you know that. The, They've seen it, right? They've profited from it. Uh, you know, the, the, many of them bought their houses, their first houses, for like twenty grand, and now they're quarter of a million. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't yeah. question that. It's like, you know, if, yeah. <laughs> like you know, I, I say to my parents, you like that house, same four walls and roof. Like you know, that you've got houses in London, which housed Victorian chimney sweep child slaves, right? They were slums now go for over a million yeah. quid like it's the same bricks yeah. it, it's it's the money like it's all broken yeah. Yeah. the whole like you said yeah. the whole foundation of it is a complete and utter farce on which they change the rules whenever they want why right. do you want to be a part of that yeah yeah that's that's one of, one of the things i was talking to uh to Mayor Conger about, you know, when we had our meeting um, was basically um, if you if you calculate your life in dollars, you know, you get one result. But if you flip your unit of account to sats and you base all of your economic calculations on on Satoshis, then you come up with a, a more clear picture of what's going on and you come up with a more um, optimistic outlook on life you know when you when you think oh, okay i can just save i can save some satoshis i can you know move forward in this you know just stacking sats and i don't have to take risks buying uh buying investments in in a company that i don't understand i don't have to take risks buying in a, a piece of property where i could get some bad tenants you know i can just stack i can work and i can stack sats and i'll be okay um when you start when you flip your mindset to you're no longer thinking in dollars and you're thinking in sats, you know, it, it shifts your, your paradigm a little bit. And so that's what I was trying to explain to him during that lunch meeting. And he, he, he it seemed like he clicked on that a little bit. He was, he was having some struggle, tr like some struggles going into it, thinking about that. But then when I said that, I think he, he understood a little bit there. And uh, yeah, that's been fun sending him down the rabbit hole. I, I, I printed off uh, 
every gradually then suddenly series by Parker Lewis. I printed off all of them and gave him each one and told him when he has a when he had when he starts getting in his mind that uh, Bitcoin can't scale or or Bitcoin's too slow. There's an article for it in this series. Just find it and then read that and then uh, then you'll have a better understanding of what's going on. So that, that that's a great. A nice little. I, I wanted to talk to you about that because uh, that's how you and I connected after my my yeah. my interview with with Maya Conga. You you turned up in my DMs something along the lines of, "God damn, I can't believe he doxed me on that interview." <laughs> so, well, he said my he just said my first and last name, and then he started buying Bitcoin in 2015. I'm like, I don't want the whole world to know. <laughs> so, so how how did you? I had to upgrade my security after that. <laughs> <laughs> How did you guys meet then? And what was the, you know, what's the kind of backstory to, uh, yeah, to, to like the meeting that you just described? I mean, was, was there any prior uh, friendship or was, what's the, what, yeah. what's the go? How did this go down? Yeah, when I worked for that construction company in Jackson, we did a, um, we built a housing, like a big apartment complex that was, it was like, somewhat like tax credits and there was a lot going on with it but the, the city of jackson was involved in the in the whole situation and uh you know it was a 20 million dollar project and when we got through we had a big ceremony you know open the doors it was a low low income housing uh complex and so he came to the ceremony and i was the project manager that ran the job and so we we talked a little bit then and i kind of i mean jackson's not a very big place so i mean you kind of run into the same people um, we had run into each other then. And then uh, but just from my days at the country club, you know, me spouting off about Bitcoin, I, you know, I built a reputation as the Bitcoin guy. And um, one of the guys at the country club is, um, is a uh, who works for the Jackson Chamber of Commerce. And I guess Scott reached out to the Jackson Chamber and wanted to look into blockchain technology and see what they knew. And and so uh, the, the president of the chamber, Scott, and then the guy that I know from, from Jackson set up a meeting and they just invited me to come down there and kind of give my spill and talk to, talk to Mayor Conger and, and uh, talk to Kyle, who's the head of the, the Jackson chamber. And so we just had a lunch meeting. I brought uh, the Bitcoin standard. I brought inventing Bitcoin. I brought the gradually then suddenly series and then a whole list of, of audio stuff that I suggested if they didn't want to didn't want to sit down and read. Um, but yeah, so we just he 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 was, you know, it all started like when I called him out on Twitter, he, he was or I replied to Suarez like, hey, Mayor Conger, when Bitcoin standard in Jackson, just kind of a shit post or whatever. And he responded back like, uh, why not Doge? And then, you know, it created the pile on and everybody jumped on Conger and just, you know, it, you know how the, the cyber hornets are. <laughs> and uh, so then he, like he, he said, he started the, the conversation with Suarez and that's when he, I don't think he knew it was me who, who, who commented, who got in, in that shit storm um, until we met during the lunch meeting. And that was the first thing I said during the lunch meeting. I said, Hey, I just want to apologize for, for getting you into that on Twitter. He was like, no, it's all right. You know, I'm, I, I yeah, I've got thick skin. They have to as a mayor. And, and, uh, but yeah, that's kind of how the, the, the whole story started leading up to that conversation. But yeah, it was, he was just wanted to ask some questions about Bitcoin. He wanted to ask questions about blockchain and cryptocurrency. So I had to correct that pretty quick and just put it into the Bitcoin only frame. I told him I was there to talk about Bitcoin. I could tell him why I'm only there to talk about Bitcoin, but 
I'm not really here to talk about any other crypto projects. And what's the state of play now? Because uh, he's he's been on my podcast. He's been on Marty's podcast. Uh, he's he's definitely Bitcoin curious. Uh, he yeah, I did not expect him to go start going through these podcasts like that. Uh, it was a little bit surprising because. I guess he he is. He, I mean, the more he's talking about this on podcasts, he's starting to understand some stuff. You can tell like he's getting down the rabbit hole, like he understands what's going on. I think he still has some learning to do like we all do. I mean, he's, he's six months down the rabbit hole and all of us are, you know, years down the rabbit hole. Um, so we've he's he, we're emailing back and forth now. He sent me some stuff. We're, we're getting this uh, his blockchain task force meeting set up. Uh, he wants me to run it. So my first initiative is to change the name from blockchain task force to Bitcoin task force. Um, we're going to make it Bitcoin only. Um, but yeah, he's wanting to set up some way that the city employees can opt in to, to some payroll, some deferred compensation. And then he's had me reaching out. I've been reaching out. I reached out to Marty. I reached out to uh, Denver Bitcoin, you know, looking for mining equipment. We're trying to figure out what we can do, how we can set it up on what he's got for a budget. He doesn't really have the budget for it right now, but we're, we're going to work and see what we can do about uh, about mining Bitcoin. But I think I think we got legislation to get passed before then. So I think our first uh, meeting is in a couple of weeks. We're going to meet and sit down with the rest of the people and and just uh, go from there. He's probably going to assign us some some objectives, what we need to get done or what he wants us to, to be working on. But, yeah, I've, I've volunteered some time to, to help out and and basically make it uh, Bitcoin maximalist as I can. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> That is so yeah. awesome. A Bitcoin maxi this close to such a, a great initiative. Uh, yeah, fingers crossed you can, you guys can can have the effect that you're looking to have on your community because that is, from, from what I took out of the conversation with him, this is his main concern, right? This is his, his duty to his, his city and, and the people that are living there. And he sees the fact that, you know, if we can do something special here with with Bitcoin. And if we can, you know, plug in some miners and, and uh, clean up the air and do, do or use renewables, whatever it is, uh, powering these machines and then turn that into Bitcoin and then put that on the the, the city balance sheet, man, you, you're off to the races. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it could be, you know, the last tax, like that, that article that Marty wrote about the last tax. I think that's kind of uh, the long term goal is what I would think. I know he wants to spend all the money he's in government, but um, you know, you could you could set up a, a fund that literally like I think Jimmy Song was talking about a wallet that he had. I can't remember the name of the fable, but it was basically their self refilling wallet where he, he put some Bitcoin in a wallet. And basically every time it doubled, he would spend a little bit of it and then he would wait and it would double again. And so it was like as the price was going up, he always had like I think it was three hundred dollars. He always he would spend one hundred and fifty of it. And then once it got back up to three hundred dollars, he would spend one hundred and fifty. And you could have that as a jurisdiction. You know, if you have a. a a reserve asset of Bitcoin, then, you know, you can wait. And once it gets to a certain threshold, as the price goes up, you know, you can afford more goods and services. Um, and so, you know, you could, you could get into a situation like that. If the city can hold it on its balance sheet, you know, you have where you're not having to tax as much, you know, you're, you're, you're inviting people to come to the city to live, you know, in a more entrepreneurial capitalism friendly environment where they're not having to pay as many taxes and, and uh, the city's got a sound economic foundation. And uh, yeah, I, I would love to see Jackson really thrive in that, that environment. And I'm, I'm glad that Scott was able, because <clears throat> that's the thing about orange filling people is like, 
you they have to be able to look at it. You know, most people aren't willing to look. You know, they're they're they see the problems, but when you bring up Bitcoin, they're not even willing to look at it. They're just, you know, they ignore it, they write it off. And uh Scott was he was open-minded enough to like say, hey, I'll take a look at this and just see what's there. And he explored it. He looked at cryptocurrencies, he looked at other stuff, and then you know, talked to the right people and listened to enough stuff where now he's he's only really focused on Bitcoin at this time. So um no, it's promising. So what do you guys, what do you think you need for, if there's anyone listening that uh, is like getting bullish AF about this right now, uh, what, what do you think is the, the the next step for you guys? Obviously you, you, you've reached out to Marty in Denver uh, about the mining side of things. What, what else kind of um, is on your mind uh, or might be kind of a, you know, a nice to have for six to nine months time? Uh, yeah, I guess what I'm what I'm working on on the my side of it. I think he's got some other guys who are kind of helping with the um, helping the employees take some some of their deferred compensation. I think some of those have some other connections there. Uh, what I'm looking at, I'm going to meet with our local energy authority and just see because in my mind, it actually would probably be better if we could just entice mining operations, private mining operations to come to Jackson. I think that's more of a long-term sustainable way to go about it rather than have the city do it. Because as much as you would like the city to do it, they're not going to have the efficiencies. They're not going to have the drive to like compete. Whereas mining is a very competitive industry. You have to constantly be upgrading, chasing that lower cost energy. And we all know how government works. They're not operating that way. They're kind of throwing money at stuff and seeing what happens. Um, so I would like to talk to the to our local. I think we have a meeting set up with our um, our local energy authority. Like like Scott said, we're it's TVA. So there's like nuclear, there's hydroelectric, there's there's some uh, pretty efficient energy, and we have pretty low cost energy on the commercial side. And so I think we have a meeting set up with them. We're going to talk to them about trying to get some kind of deals to help with their peak off peak operation hours, and see if we can't incentivize <clears throat> some other miners to come to Jackson. Um, and, and try to find some space for them. I know we're going to work with the, com the, the Chamber of Commerce to see what's available as far as like commercial space where, where things could be set up. Um, but that's kind of my initiative is to, to, you know, if anybody, any miners want to, that are in the area that want to reach out and, and look at opening and starting something in Jackson, we're trying to set up some incentives to make it worth, worth their while. Uh, so that'd be, a, that's kind of my objective going forward for the next six months. And if you play this thing out in like five years time, what was your kind of vision for the city? I mean, I've never visited. I don't know how big it is or whatever else, but I'm trying to, what, what yeah. puts a big smile on my face is like, <clears throat> imagine orange pilling that many people and, and, and getting, you know, build, building this community that we all want to see. We, we, we all want to see a Bitcoin yeah. community, right? What it's really like. Well, I want to go to Bitcoin Beach and see what's going on yeah. down there. <laughs> That's kind of, because <clears throat> I would... <laughs> One thing that that bothers me the most about like our current economy is when I go to like a fuel station or whatever, and I see somebody who I know can't afford it buying lottery tickets, like they're buying five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars at a time. Like if they could just think about like long term and just buy five, ten dollars worth of Bitcoin instead of buying a lottery ticket, because every time they go, I, I want to see like a um, an environment or a city where people are starting to understand that. And they know that like, like if they have this Bitcoin, they could spend it. I think the biggest hurdle that we have though, is the, is the capital gains tax. I mean, if, if, if that wasn't an issue, you know, 
if there wasn't capital gains tax, I'd probably be completely on a Bitcoin standard. I probably wouldn't even have bank accounts. Um, but that's that's like the biggest hurdle for for switching to a Bitcoin standard is the the tax incentive. So I don't know if we can. I don't know if there's anything that we could do about it locally. But um, yeah, like trying to create like a, an economy where everyone understands Bitcoin. You know, if we can get the city to do some educational stuff. I know Scott wants to. Scott wants to have like a. Uh, I think it's it's already scheduled for in the next couple of weeks to have like a educational seminar where to for economic empowerment of of low income areas. And I think we're going to do a little bit of Bitcoin stuff on that and talk just to help people understand that, you know, they can use Bitcoin as a savings, use it as a piggy bank and just buy a little bit instead of buying lottery tickets and throwing away money doing other stuff. Um, so that's what I want to say. I want to see it start on an individual level on the lower income. You know, as much as I like my golfer friends, they're going to be OK. You know, <laughs> I want to see it happen in the other areas of the economy. Yeah, hundred percent. All right, should we geek out on golf a little bit? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Favorite film? Favorite film? Uh, yeah, it's a tough one. It's probably Ten Cup golf film. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to go with Ten Cup. It's it's close between Ten Cup and Caddyshack. I'd have had a hundred bucks like on Caddyshack. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's uh, yeah, Tin Cup. I remember that one. That's a pretty good one. Um, I mean, any others? Any other outstanding ones? I mean, was Bagger Vance? Uh, yeah, there was. There's a few other other good ones, but uh, yeah, Tin Cup. Tin Cup was just. I think that was my favorite one. Uh, yeah, I guess Happy Gilmore's up there too. Oh being yeah, of course, of yeah. course. All right, books. Yeah. Have any have any books influenced uh, your your game in any way? Uh, because I know as a yeah yeah. All right, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess when I was, when I was first like really grinding in Bitcoin, I mean, in, in golf, uh, when I was first going down, like trying to figure out how to play good golf, like what it takes to be a good tournament golfer, because when I was coming into college, you know, I really didn't play a whole lot of tournament golf. So when I first started playing tournament golf, my scores were all over the place. And so I started reading like Bob Rotella. It's all about the mental game and staying very patient, one shot at a time, staying within yourself and trying to get into a zone. Uh, and that really, I mean, as much as I practice physically, that probably had more of an impact on my scores than anything else is being very patient and staying one shot at a time, not getting ahead of yourself. Um, some of the best rounds of golf I've ever had, like I shot uh, 61 a couple of like last year in a pro-am I was playing at a pro-am with some guys on the Latin America tour and um we're so I'm kind of really focused on staying one shot at a time because in the pro-am you know you're just trying to help your team and uh I ended up you know getting through the round and on the last hole I putted out and the guys I was playing with were like oh man congratulations I thought you were gonna have a putt at it and I looked at him I was like what are you talking about I was like because I was so in the zone I didn't know what my score was I didn't know how low I was but on the last hole as a par five, I was uh, I was 10 under going into the par five. And I thought, you know, if I if I make eagle, I shoot 59. And so it was or I see I was uh, I was 11. No, I was. Yeah, it was par 71. So I was 10 under. If I make eagle, I shoot 59. And uh, they all knew it, but I didn't know it. I was so in the zone one shot at a time that when I, I hit my tee shot on the par five, and I got a bad bounce in the fairway and it rolled over just in the rough, had to lay up, hit a wedge on and missed a birdie putt. But they, they were like, you just shot 61. And I was, I didn't even realize it, but that was kind of, well, you have to get into that mindset. And that was what 
like Bob Rotella's books talk about is you have to be very patient, stay one shot at a time. You have to keep your head down and just try to get into the zone. Um, but yeah, if you want to improve your golf game, if you work on the mental side, stay, you know, stay in positive, stay in, uh, in the moment and taking everything one shot at a time, you know, you can change your game in a shorter period of time than you can trying to fix your swing. Yeah. Dr. Bob, he's amazing. I loved his book. Um, he, I know he's got a few out there. I, I can't remember the exact one I read, but it was, I think it's, yeah, it was about the putting and the, the difference that makes to your game. And it was just like the, the tiny little tips. Uh, one, one tip that always stuck with me, uh, I don't know if it was from his book or someone else must have picked it up and, and give it to me. I can't exactly remember. But on the long putts, and by the way, total amateur, like, you know, rubbish. But on the long putts, um, just always keeping your eyes on the hole. So like uh, not not looking at the ball when you swing through and uh, and make the long, you know, you're trying to sink a 60 footer, just keep your eyes on the yeah. hole. I could not believe the difference that made. That was incredible. Yeah, yeah and trying to make everything. Yeah. It's like, yeah, there's a line in one of his books. I've, I've read them all a couple of times, but there's a line in one of the books that's, um, you know, they asked him if he was confident, if he could make a 30 foot or a 60 foot putt or something like that. And he was like, yeah, I'm confident. My chances are not very good, but I'm but I'm trying to make the putt. And as that was his skill, was you're not putting, you're not trying to lag it into a three foot circle. You're trying to make it. That way, if you miss, you're inside the three foot circle anyway. You know, you're always trying to make. Anytime you're inside of a hundred yards, you're trying to make the shot. You know, that's that's where you want to get to. Is you're not thinking about trying to you know keep it inside a ten foot or a three foot circle. You want to try to make everything inside, so you're you're dialed in on a target. And that's the that's some of the hardest stuff about golf is to kind of free yourself up, quit thinking about your swing and really just play target golf where you're, you're dialed in, you're confident in the shot and you're picking targets instead of just getting up there and thinking about, you know, am I laid off? Am I over the top? You know, am I swinging too fast? Am I swinging too slow? That's when you really start hitting bad shots. What's, um, what do you think is the most memorable moment for you uh, as a as a spectator of golf? Something that uh, that you've seen and uh, you know perhaps in a tournament growing up and uh, getting into it. What's what's one of those moments that will always live with you? As a spectator of golf, uh, well, the first thing that comes to mind was uh, was Ricky Fowler at the at the. Uh, players championship when he played 17 over they had to play it over and over for the playoff like during regulation and he had the, the pin was you know it's tucked over on the far right corner kind of a sucker pin and uh he won it but he stuck he hit it to inside of 10 feet all every three all three times he played it when most players are bailing out left and he was dialed in uh that one kind of stands out i remember thinking the mental fortitude he had to step up there and hit that shot over and over and over and keep hitting it, you know, during the playoff, I think they played it twice in the playoff and then he played it once in regulation. Um, that was a big one, but then, you know, the big, the big stuff at the masters with tiger chipping in, I still remember that. That was, that was unreal. Um, a lot of it does go back to, to stuff that tiger's done the putt on that he made on Tory Pines to force the playoff with Rocco mediate, uh, you know, Everybody knew he was going to make it. As soon as he hit the shot in, he had a 15-footer, and I was like, okay, it's good. We're going to have a playoff. And he rolls it in there and makes it on the poana. The ball's bouncing. It goes in. He always finds a way to make the putt. Uh, those were some big ones. But, um, yeah, nothing, nothing really, like, stands out as, like, one single moment. You know, I've watched a lot of golf. and um, But, yeah, those those moments in the big, in the big tournaments 
when uh, you know, I like I've been in some big tournaments, not not as big as a major, but I've been in some big tournaments and I know what it feels like to get in those spots and to see those guys do it like and hit some incredible shots under those situ under those circumstances. The funny thing is, is they're in their mind. You have to get like very into what you're doing and kind of like everything has to drown out around you. And so they're thinking like, this is just a, you know, a normal shot. I've hit this shot on the practice screen a hundred times. I've hit this on the range, you know, a hundred times. Like let's just stick to the routine, focus on the target and hit the shot. And then, uh, but to do it under, under those circumstances is pretty, pretty impressive. Is that the marginal difference do you think? Is that because, you know, you, 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 you've played at all of these different levels and you're very much on the cusp of, of play, playing in the, you know, the, the U S um, open that you, you're going to be exposed to goodness knows who you might be paired with on the, on the tee box. Right. Uh, yeah. But you could be stood up some of like, uh, next to some of these, these incredible players that we've, we've, um, all grown up watching. What is, what is that difference? And there, there is still a golf of a difference, isn't there? Um, good analogy, I suppose yeah. golf with a U. Um, but the, you know, it's, it's, it can be huge. Uh, what, what, yeah. what makes, what makes someone, you know, 10 shots better? Yeah. Well, it's generally like course management would be a big one. Like these guys, uh, stay in the moment. Whereas when someone who's not quite there, they hit a bad shot, they let it get to them and they try to press and do extra, you know, they try to hit the heroic shot when they should just pitch out hit it on the green and try to save their par. They try to hit it onto the green from in the woods and, and, you know, create more problems. That's a lot of, you do that over four days, you know, you're looking at three or four shots around difference and that, that turns out to 12 strokes in the, in the end. Um, so there's a lot of that, but then everybody that I know that's been like really good, like that's made it on tour or, or played in some big tournaments, they've all seemed like they've been some of the best putters I've ever known. Like the guys who just every, when you're playing with them, it looks like it's going in every time they hit a putt. I mean, they'll burn edges, but, every putt is online and it looks like it's going to go in and it's always good speed. Um, that's like a, a big difference that, that I noticed amongst my, the people that I play with was you can tell when somebody's, when somebody can roll the rock, they're going to be good as long as, because you're going to have days where you're going to hit it good. You're going to have days where you hit it bad, but those guys always putt good. Like uh, Danny Green, uh, he's a local legend, played in two Masters, played in uh, – he won the U.S. Mid-Am, finished runner-up in the USM. He's from Jackson. We play a lot together. Um, he's getting a little older now, so he doesn't play as much as he used to. But I, he, he probably is one of the best amateur golfs, golfers to ever play the game. If you look him up, he's, he's – you know, doesn't look like much, doesn't look like he would be that good, but he could putt – he could make putts for many. If he was inside of 10 feet, he always had a, had a saying, if he could see down in the hole, he was going to make it. So if he was inside of 10 feet and he was making everything. And uh, if you go and talk to any of the guys who went up playing amateur golf that turned pro, some of the, you know, the really good players, they all had to go through Danny. He was a little bit older than them, but he was playing amateur golf and he was always a tough out. He would beat a lot of people he wasn't supposed to beat in like the U S amateur, the mid am and stuff. Um, but playing a lot with him, that was what I took away because he he hits it pretty good, but he's not like he doesn't he's not a Bryson DeChambeau. He doesn't crush it. He hits it okay and he hits it pretty straight. But once he got on the green, like it didn't matter where he was. If you were playing against him, you were worried that he was gonna make it. <laughs> I mean, 30, 40 feet away, it looked like it was gonna go in every time. Let's talk Ryder Cup. 
I mean, we've got to, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm a Euro pleb, you're a US pleb. What, yeah. um, I, I think that is one of the, 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 I think it's almost my favorite sporting event to watch. It's, it's so yeah. great. But, uh, yeah. you know, any standout moments there for you? How much animosity is it? I used to work with a, uh, an American guy and God damn, he used to get so worked up about some of our players. Like he used to like hate Sergio's fist pumps or um, hate, uh, hate Polter's crazy eyes, you know, whatever it was. And uh, I, I think everybody, everybody over here kind of hates Polter, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> outside of that. Why, no, I, why though? What, what, for, for what reason? because he seems like he'd be a hack and then he goes out there and he wins a bunch of matches. <laughs> he doesn't win anything all year. And then he goes out there and beats all of our players during the Ryder cup. <laughs> and you have to That's reverse with Tiger, right? The complete yeah, reverse. Yeah. For whatever reason, Tiger right. can just never turn it on in a Ryder cup. Yeah. Yeah. Match play is just weird. I mean, some people have it and some people don't. I've never been that good at match play. I've, I've won some stroke play events and then I go to a match play and, and people that I think I'm supposed to beat and everybody thinks I'm going to beat, you know, can sneak up and, they'll they'll either keep it closer and i'll be uncomfortable or they'll or you know they can get ahead and then i've got to play catch up but uh yeah match play is just a totally different you're playing it it's hole by hole um there's a lot of you know back and forth of you hit a good shot you put pressure on them they hit a bad shot it takes pressure off you and then you got to still stay focused there's a lot more to it than uh just going out and playing stroke play golf and so like yeah like you said like tiger you know he's had his has had his issues, and then you got guys like Ian Poulter who who can't make a cut on the PGA Tour who go out there and beat all our guys in the Ryder Cup. It's a, it's it's a crazy crazy sport. Yeah, I love it. It's a, I mean, and there's got to be there's got to be a Bitcoin Ryder Cup at one of these conferences. That's got to be set up. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, it'll be so much fun. I've been working, I've been working on setting something up. We had. Uh, we had a telegram group and we talked to some guys. We were trying to get some tea times at, uh, on that Sunday after the Bitcoin conference, just to get a bunch of guys together and play. Uh, but after I qualified for the, uh, the U S open qualifier, I had to back out because the practice round will be on that day, but I think they're still playing. It's at, uh, it's just, I think it's just South of the conference at Crandone in Miami. Um, a bunch of guys are getting together. I think they've got three or four tea times set up, but yeah, we need to do a, a Ryder cup style and get it like a, uh, have some stuff on the line, maybe a trophy that we can pass back and forth. But yeah, that would be fun. That'd be awesome. What, uh, what we, when we were talking earlier about uh, like most memorable moments, you you mentioned Tiger's chip in on the 16th during the, um, yeah. the the final day of the Masters. I remember watching that vividly. For me, it was like 5 a.m. In, in Singapore. And that was the Masters. He went on about a, a, I think he went, didn't he go seven birdies back to back? It was just the most incredible thing to watch. It was unbelievable. But that that shot, and uh, I've DM'd you this as well. Um, okay. This this comes to your hodl ball, right? That this is you know where this is leading. This is what I want to see in the, uh, the you know the final day U.S. Open. You're you're stood there with uh, you know the, the the putt to win it. And well, why don't you tell the listeners what you've done to your balls? What's uh, okay? <laughs> your yeah, golf so- balls. <laughs> <laughs> well, I sun them mostly. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, dip them in water. <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, yeah, so I just started uh, three or four years ago. Um, each year I get uh, a batch of golf balls from Titleist that, you know, you get customized uh, for uh, use for the tournaments throughout the year. But I started getting 21 as the number. You can get them all, 20, all the same number. So all of them say 21. And then uh, I've changed out what, I, what it says on the side. But this year I put HODL on the side. 
And, uh, yeah, so that would be pretty cool if that ball could uh, trickle over the lip and stop like Tigers just to show the huddle uh, on the side of it as it falls in. And um, I'll make the cut. <laughs> no, not make the cut. Win, win the trophy. <laughs> win win yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't know when the last time an amateur won it. I think it was in the 30s. But, yeah, that's the weird thing about golf is, you know, amateur golf was like the prestigious part. And then it, at some point it flipped because, like, professionals were just like, the working guys who work in the shop and now now it's i guess with all the prize money and stuff now it's it's hard for an amateur to compete with guys who are playing full-time you know that don't have jobs that's all they do but yeah we get a lot of that the course i play at we've got uh, a couple of college d1 college players they were playing with us every day and that's all they do is they go out and they hit balls and practice and then they come out and play with us in the game and um yeah it's hard to play with those guys sometimes they hit it a long way these kids do yeah that's um all right i got one for you. you we know we all know you're making it so you, you're on the first yeah. first uh first round of the u.s <laughs> open you got your three playing partners with you you've got three orange pills to give to each one of those players who are the players oh man um who are my orange pilling that are playing with me uh I mean, one of them has to be Tiger. Um, Tiger and Phil. I'd say Phil because he's got a, you know, he likes to talk. He's got some social media stuff going on. He's got some reach. And then uh, for the last one, it's probably going to be – man, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm trying to think who would have the most impact. Or maybe somebody I know. Well, I've got a buddy who I played high school golf with who's on the PGA Tour, so it's going to be him, Trey Mullinax. <laughs> that's who I'm going to That's who I'm going to use the fourth bill, just to help my, my friends that I know. <laughs> awesome. And we know Tiger wears red on closing day, I'm guessing. Have yeah. you figured out what you're going to wear? Oh, yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna deck it out. I'm going to have to get Bitcoin logos on everything. I guess I'll have to hit up Jack if I, when, when we get in. Well, I'll hit up Jack and get him to get me some unis, head-to-toe unis, and maybe let one of the plebs design it, and uh, we'll go out there with, the, like, the Indy car <laughs> dressed up. I guess I could just take Ricky Fowler's uh, uni, but I don't know if I could pull that off or not. <laughs> <laughs> that was so funny when you put that on Twitter, and I sent you the, uh, the dumb and dumber guy in the orange suit, and he comes straight back with Ricky Fowler. I'm like, oh, yeah, shit, he's done that. Yeah, I forgot about that. But, uh, yeah, that's Ricky Fowler, standard apparel. He, he definitely needs to be orange-pilled. I mean, that's uh, – it's – it's like yeah, you know the llama. Yeah, he wears orange. Maybe I put him in that. Maybe we'll play a fobsome and we'll add Ricky Fowler to the pairing. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, have we? Uh, no, th that's one thing I wanted to cover cover with you um, because you know we've we've got more athletes coming out now. Um, you know this this sport seems the most perfect fit for people to yeah. fall down the rabbit hole. I mean, you, you've got holes all over the place anyway. It's what you do. But yeah. it's a low time preference sport. Like this yeah. is this is it, you know, like we've got IndyCar 500, but that's fast as shit, right? There's the, yeah, know, yeah, that's yeah. like now, 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 let's go, let's go. Um, yeah. You guys are thinking through everything intricately. It's, it seems to me primed, like predisposed that there's thousands of athletes predisposed to Bitcoin purely through the amount of mental work and fortitude that you guys go through. So how do you feel about that? 
Yeah, I guess there are there are a lot of parallels. Like, you know, I remember the the rabbit hole journey of learning about the game of golf and the mental side, and then spending every day just practicing and being patient. Because that's another thing about Bitcoin is you have to you have to really humble yourself and learn and really try to grasp. There's, it's a lot more to it than just you know another financial asset. It's it's very deep and. Um, yeah, golf is kind of the same way. You're you're you really have to have to spend a lot of time practicing before you like, can ever see results. And like you have to make in golf, you have to make like the practicing and the grind of it uh, what you enjoy about it. Because if you if you're all about the tournaments and you don't enjoy the practice time, you're never going to get there. That was one thing that that I figured out was like I could wake up every day and I could enjoy practicing golf and just go out there and love the process. And then I would, you know, next thing I know, you know, I'm seeing results, you know, but if you, but if you're sitting there thinking about the results, you're not going to get there. But Bitcoin's kind of the same way. It's like, you got to stay head down, stacking sats, like just dollar cost averaging over time, reading as much as you can, learning, uh, learning about private keys and self-storage and security. And, uh, and then you wake up four years later and, and you've seen a massive change in yourself and your, and in your financial situation, you know, it gives you a lot that's what it did for me was it gave me a lot more freedom with my time and energy and how I was able to, to allocate my time was, um, you know, it changed the way, a lot of the way I thought about stuff. So golf's kind of the same way you keep your head down and you stay patient and then the results kind of show up in the end, you know, or show up later down the road. Um, yeah, but I, I, I would think the problem that I see with golfers is most golfers are, uh, are not in an economic situation where they need Bitcoin, where, you know, a lot of people see it early because they need it or they see a need for it where, I mean, most of the people I know when I talk to them at the, at the country club or, you know, in golf tournaments, it kind of goes right by them because they're, they're just comparing it as another financial asset. They're thinking of it as an equity or as, as a commodity or something when it's a lot bigger than that. And they, they don't quite grasp that because they're, and they don't need Bitcoin. They're, they're in a situation where, uh, you know, they've got decent incomes or they grew up in a family that was, that was semi-wealthy or wealthy. And uh, so I don't know, there are some parallels, but I also think there is some, some uh, uh, hurdles that they have to get by before they're going to, a lot of golfers will understand Bitcoin. Yeah. 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 I've not thought about that. <clears throat> Although when you look at Michael Saylor, he didn't need Bitcoin. Yeah. Then all of a sudden he needed Bitcoin because yeah. you know he realized uh, all of that money was just melting away uh that's um that's when people realize it uh that yeah yeah that's that's nuts all right man well yeah, it's funny i was te i was texting one of my golf buddies the other day and he was they were talking about the dip and panicking and i was saying hey man let's go play golf i need some i need to win some money off of you so i can buy this dip <laughs> and uh he was like i can't play till sunday i said i said it's gonna be sixty thousand by sunday i need to play today so i can take some money off of you <laughs> and uh he was going on and on and he was like oh, i'm not gonna buy any and i said i said you you need bitcoin you just don't realize it yet and it may be two hundred fifty thousand dollars before you realize you need bitcoin but everybody needs bitcoin um, it's, you know, you just have to get to that point where you're, where you understand it. Yeah. hundred percent, mate. Well, listen, I, I think what you're doing is amazing. Like, you know, Bitcoin pleb, you're, you're, you're very, very close to the, you know, making a huge 
change to the city in which you live, which is just amazing. Um, you know, helping Scott understand the opportunities that, that Bitcoin can bring to communities. Mate, you, you, you're doing some amazing groundwork, pleb work from, you know, the, the high, of the highest order. And now you're going to go onto the main stage and uh, you, you've got every pleb cheering for you. So, you know, go go make it happen. Let's let's see you up on that first tee box. It'd just be so great. Thanks for representing, yeah. man. It's just, just awesome and yeah. it's great to have uh, had this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's all it's it's pretty uh, humbling because I mean I I think about I mostly post about stuff on Bitcoin on Twitter, but then I start posting golf stuff and people come out of the woodwork saying like, "Hey man, great to see you doing this." And like every like a lot of people are interested in golf, and I guess a lot of people love golf. And so um, yeah, I posted a little bit more about golf, and I think I'll start posting some more tournament stuff that I'm playing in. And uh, but yeah, it's it's pretty awesome just the amount of support that I get uh, people. And, you know, and people, everybody, everybody says, yeah, you're getting through. We'll see you at the U.S. Open. Go ahead and start planning. For it. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's it, it, huh. this last year and a half, two years or so, I've given up watching sport, but I cannot. Well, I've never watched the Indy 500. We get up at 5 a.m. and watch that, you know, yeah. for, for me to watch the U.S. Uh, open, I'm going to have to get up, you know, um, well, I'm going to have to go find a channel somehow to go and do this stuff. I'll make it work though. You know, I'm getting interested back in sport again because yeah. of what you guys are doing. So it's so a huge yeah. thanks um, because it's, yeah. it's been a big miss, a big hole. Um, but it's just been, it just became so fiat for me, you know, watching it. Um, it, it just, it lost. Um, and then when they took the crowds away, you know, you can't watch a football game or a rugby game without the crowds. It's just ridiculous. So yeah, fingers crossed for you, brother. Yeah, I, I kind of ran into the same thing. I haven't watched any any sports really in the last year or two. Uh, just it's yeah, lost its luster, and, and there's a lot more interesting things to look at right now. So yep, um, yeah. Hopefully, we can get a lot more athletes coming on, and uh, maybe we can get a sports team somewhere to to put Bitcoin on a jersey, or or uh, I guess there is a soccer mm -hmm. team in there. Yeah. We yeah Southampton this season and uh, Watford last season, so it's it's starting yeah. to happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a it's a, a great time to be alive. I know that that like living through this uh, transition as as we transition to from a fiat standard to Bitcoin standard, uh, it's going to be pretty cool. You know, it's inevitable. At some at some point, somebody's going to trade the last Bitcoin for the last dollar, and that's going to be it. And then you're not going to be able to buy Bitcoin with dollars anymore. Uh, it's just a human, like the way human incentives line up, we're going to go to that point. And uh, it's pretty cool that we're getting to see the start of it. Well, you know, who knows where we are in the cycle. This could be, this could be, I mean, it could be 50 years, could be 10 years, but we'll see. So I'm excited about it. And uh, I'm going to do everything I can to, to uh, help support Bitcoin and help push it forward in the city of Jackson and the state of Tennessee. And um, if I make it into the U.S. Open or when I make it into the U.S. Open, I'm uh, I'm going full Bitcoin logos, head to toe golf bag logoed up, and my caddy's going to wear Bitcoin stuff too. So, <laughs> mate, it's going to be so great. It's going to be so <laughs> damn great. And we need it. We need a pleb. I I think we need one of the plebs doing some like uh, live stream commentary, like Caddyshack style. That would just be so yeah. great. <laughs> Cinderella story. Yeah. <laughs> 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 all right well where can people reach out and find you so and um again make sure if there's anyone that can help you out with what you're trying to achieve in the city of jackson please please reach out to, to aaron um what's the best way yeah twitter i mean that's pretty much the only platform i'm on right now is uh btc aaron on twitter uh i think my twitter name is double a on there that's what my all my buddies call me so 
Yeah, just reach out to me on Twitter. Yeah, like I said, I'm. I think we're going to push to try to get some miners to come to Jackson. So if you, if you're in the industry and you want to look for some cheap energy and maybe some help on on uh on finding space, uh, just hit me up and we'll we'll go from there. Love it. Well, thanks for taking the time today, mate. And uh, yeah, get out there, practice some putting, keep that head up, keep that head down. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Cheers, mate. Take care. So, guys, what do you think about that? revved up now to watch this golf tournament take place if aaron can make the cut that'd be so great having uh, the 21 car at the indy 500 just yesterday at time of recording it was such a thrill to see that and take the lead for about the first uh, like 30 35 laps it was just unbelievable and here we are with another athlete now stepping up to represent we have american footballers coming out of the woodwork we have football soccer players coming out of the woodwork as well we've got a boxer and uh, adam kovnatsky he's been on the show before so it's happening it's going mainstream so keep stacking do i need to tell you that seriously we i mean listen to aaron here he's talking about he's he's going to try and start pilling as many golf people as he can but he's also helping mayor conga orange pill the whole city of jackson in tennessee which is just another unique and amazing story in its own right so reach out to aaron give him a big thanks and give him a you know a big uh, thumbs up pat him on the back good luck brother we are all behind you before we sign off make sure you're stacking guys you can do that in the uk with coin floor you can do it across europe with relay r-e-l-a-i and you can do it in the US with Swan. And that is swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. Use forward slash bitten for all of these URLs. And I am going to beg you guys, please, to make sure you take control of these coins. And you know how you can do that by now. It's the Bitbox 02 hardware wallet. It's a Bitcoin only edition. You hear it shield on my show. You hear it shield on Guy Swan's show. You hear it shield on John Vallis's show. And if you don't, you should be listening to those shows too because they are two of the best shows in the business. There's a reason we all like this product and there's a reason we really do plead with you guys to make sure that you take control of your coins. It's the logical next step. If you've started your stacking journey, you have to take control of it. This is a good way to do it. It is an easy wallet to get the hang of. It's packed full of cool features. So easy for beginners or if you're adding it to your stash of hardware wallets, it will fit right in. So go check them out. It's shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Go check out my book if you're interested. That's called Choose Life. You'll find it on Amazon. And you can find more about me and the show sponsors on once-bitten.com. I look forward to the next show, guys. Thanks so much.